Right. We're back on air. Welcome to episode nine of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, the podcast that takes an alternative look at Ashes cricket through the eyes of the one Ashes Test Wonders. You find us in the early 1970s, the 1970-71 Ashes series in Australia, to be specific. And what a series it was. Greg Chappell made his debut in the second test at Perth. Well, I'd grown up dreaming about playing test cricket, obviously, and all of our test matches in the backyard had been Ashes test matches. So it was a dream from very early on. So to get to play in an Ashes test match was a bit surreal. Greg came in when Australia was rocking at 107 for five, but a maiden test century was his thrilling and brilliant response. And his time playing county cricket in England was certainly a help. I'd played a couple of seasons of county cricket with Somerset by that stage, so I'd played against all of the England bowlers at, at different times in county crickets. You know, John Snow was the key bowler. He'd actually um, hit me in the in the head in the county game at Hove uh, on a wet wicket. I went to play a pull shot. The wicket was a bit damp, so the ball sat up and it hit the back of the bat and ricocheted into my face, which was a bit of a shock because I'd never been hit in the head before. So John Snow clearly had previous, and Greg would be at the non-striker's end when Snow famously hit Terry Jenner in the pivotal seventh test of the series at Sydney, an incident that ultimately led to Ray Illingworth taking his side from the field. Ken Eastwood, our guest last time around on Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, made his solitary test appearance in that match at the SCG, replacing Bill Laurie at the top of the order, which meant Australia had a new captain, the one, the only, Ian Chappell. Suddenly Greg comes into the test side and he makes a 100 on debut. And I'm now thinking, Jesus Christ, if I don't get off my ass, I'm going to get replaced by my brother here. So that, that was the first thing. And then... Not long after that, getting the captaincy, you know, if you look at my record, I think I averaged 51 the bat as captain. I think those two things were the spurs that really got me going. And Ken Eastwood wasn't the only new recruit that Ian had to deal with in his first match as captain. Tony and I roomed together for that test. For some reason or other, the captain didn't have a single room, which is normal procedure. Anyhow, we, we roomed together, which was good because... Yeah, I played against him, but I didn't really know him all that well, so it was mm. it was good. And did Ian have any influence in getting Tony into the side? What, you think the Australian captain in those days had a say in selection? <laughs> all of which brings us to today's guest. We've not exactly been short of drama or controversy on Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, but nothing is likely to rival the incredible story of Tony Dell, Australian Test cricketer, 255. If you look at my actual birthday, 6th of August 1945, Hiroshima, same day. My father-in-law always used to call me Anthony Hiroshima Dell. Born on one of the darkest days in human history, Tony Dell was thrust, age 20, into the horrors of the Vietnam War. A victim, like thousands of other Australian young men, of conscription lottery. Despite returning from his tour to play Sheffield Shield and Test Cricket including that one Ashes test in 1971, his time in Vietnam was to take a heavy toll on his mental health and a devastating effect on his life. It took 40 years 
but he was finally diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and this inspired him to found Stand Tall for PTS, the not-for-profit that strives to improve treatment for PTS and reduce the number of mental health-associated suicides. With expert assistance from Ian and Greg Chappell, it's time Tony's tale was told. From 1962 to 1973, more than 60,000 Australians served in the Vietnam War. Only one of these men went on to play cricket for Australia. He played two test matches, taking five wickets on his debut against England at the SCG. And in 41 first-class matches, he took 137 wickets at 26.7. But these statistics become meaningless against the struggles and trauma that resulted from his 10-month tour of Vietnam. Tony, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thank you, Graham. Let's start with your early years pre-Australia, because I understand you were born in England. Yes, I was born in, I'm not quite sure if it's Hampshire or Dorset. I was born there in 1945. My dad was in the Royal Navy during the Second World War. I only remember a lot of my early boyhood from photographs. And it was an idyllic boyhood as far as I'm concerned. I really didn't know much about the war and... I can just remember times when, especially in the school holidays, mum would make some sandwiches and a couple of us would just go rambling um, in the woods and scrumping apples from uh, apple orchards, picking blackberries and mushrooms. And it was just a, a super time for a young boy. And then you moved to Wales. How did that come about? Yeah, well, my dad, when he left the Navy, went to work as a travelling salesman for Hoover. He was totally driven, and I now know after he died, that he also uh, had PTSD and he was a driven man. And then um, he was sent to Cardiff to manage the South Wales branch with the, I think, the factories at Merthyr Tidville there. We were there for a couple of years, um, especially during the, the Empire Games back then. Uh, as a Boy Scout, I was a messenger back in the, uh, in the day before faxes and, and emails. I just used to take written reports from the boxing and the swimming to a headquarters on my bike and in my scouts uniform. Where did you go to school in Cardiff? I went to the Hawadian High School. I played the round ball game before I went to Cardiff. My dad was in, um, in, in the Navy team and United Services and just loved his rugby. Wherever we've moved to, I mean, I think his first port of call has been the local rugby club. He was a member of Cardiff Rugby and Cliff Morgan was, uh, was a personal friend and came to our house a couple of times. I think he's a, a legend of Welsh rugby. We were there until 59. Dad had obviously done a pretty good job in Cardiff and they said, well, how about uh, we send you to Australia and you open up Hoover in, in Queensland? I think mum thought we were just going there for three years, but 50 years later she was still here. And you were, what, 12 at that point? That must have been a huge culture shock for you. Well, I mean, you're going to Australia, I mean, the other side of the world. I mean, the excitement, I mean, we went in the Orcades and that took about five weeks. We've gone through the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal and down the Indian Ocean and, and round to Sydney, um, came through the Sydney Heads, um, the Harbour Bridge, and then flew up to Queensland from Sydney. Because we lived in the south of England, me, my two brothers and my sister and my dad, yeah, you know, we were sort of sun worshippers and to be living in Brisbane and being able to go to the Gold Coast on weekends and for holidays was fabulous. Had you played any cricket in England before going to Australia? 
I do remember my early days, I was sort of a wicketkeeper batsman and in Hemel Hempstead we had these games um, up against a big brick wall. So you didn't need a wicketkeeper. So, I mean, that's when I started bowling. My first real recollections of cricket were the, was the 56 Ashes. Brisbane-based players like Peter Burge, Wally Grout, Ken Mackay, who would have thought that four or five years later I'd be playing with and against them? I mean, in my very first first grade match at Eastern Suburbs in Brisbane, Peter Birch was my captain. Wally Grout and Ken Mackay were, uh, were in the opposition. I mean, it was quite surreal. And what about school in Australia? I understand one of your schoolmates was Dennis Lilly, although not the Dennis Lilly people might think of. My Dennis Lilly, he was a little short leg spinner. He played for Queensland and I got there and he tells me the story and I I have no recollection of this whatsoever. But I got there for the last term in 59. He said, oh, do you play cricket? And I said, oh, yeah. I sort of bowl a bit. All the other forms in in that year, they had all the guns, blokes that were already um, being touted to play in the first. And this was when they were 14. My Dennis Lilly. He said, we won it. He said, you and I together. But he, against all odds, we won the form championship. I guess that was when I first thought that I was not too bad at this game. 1960 year, I went down to eastern suburbs. You know, as a young 15-year-old. Um, I was playing under 17 on turf in long trousers while at school. I was in the under 15 C's, playing in shorts, you call them plimsolls, we call them sand shoes, on artificial wickets. The teachers at school, this was Church of England Grammar School, didn't recognise talent. By the second half of 1960, I was playing in the under 15 A's. 1961, I got a few games in the first. The big season was 62 when David Taylor and I sort of opened the bowling. We won the Greater Public Schools Premiership. Over here, there's a few Catholic schools in the, in the competition, and we were Church of England, so playing the Catholic schools was a bit of a grudge match. Yeah, I mean, the big thing that season was we were playing Nudgy College, and we got them all out for eight. We had them seven wickets down for one run, and then someone snicked one through slips and stuffed it all up. <laughs> How many wickets did you take that day? I got five for two and David Taylor got four for six. How did the step up then into grade cricket arrive? I played the under-17 competition at Eastern Suburbs in Brisbane for a couple of seasons. The 62-63 season, I got invited to a uh, trial for Eastern Suburbs. In that match, I got my one and only hat-trick in my whole life. I knocked over three season first grade players I was picked in in the A grade. What were your plans at this stage for after school? Were you thinking about university? Graham I always wanted to be an architect. My dad was very friendly with the architect that designed and built the new Hoover buildings when he came over here. It was all planned that I would do architecture at night at university and I'd work with him in the daytime. Before that was about to happen, he said, I'm sorry, but times have changed and and I can't afford to uh, put you on. I continued going to university at night and doing lots and lots of odd jobs. Architecture 
without having the practical experience got far too hard. A friend of my father's named John Garnsey was doing um, advertising courses at night and eventually he offered me a job. That was about 1965. But by then, you know, the, the war in Vietnam was hotting up. The Australian government decided that we had to be in Vietnam. So they came up with the idea of conscription of national service. The Australian government put together a process whereby they drew numbers out of a hat. And they were designated as birthdays. So in my case, they drew out the 6th of August, 1945. Every person in Australia that turned 20 on that day, every male, became eligible for national service. I told them I had flat feet, but uh, they didn't believe me, and I was conscripted. And sometime in 1966, um, it would have been April 1966, uh, I was put on a bus with a whole heap of other people, and we went down to Singleton in New South Wales, just north of Sydney where I spent the first um, six months of my, my time in the army. Three months recruit training. If you think back, um, where there was probably a little bit of brainwashing type stuff and we were going off to uh, defeat the yellow peril and uh, there was reds under the beds. They said, well, what corps do you want to, because we were all together for those first three months and then you had to choose a, a corps. I chose infantry. Then I went through corps training for the next three months. And then they uh, asked you, well, where would you like to go from here? And I just wanted to go back to Brisbane and play cricket on weekends. So I went to 2RAR, the 2nd Battalion, and played some cricket on, on weekends. And lo and behold, we were next to go to Vietnam. And so from the cruel twist of fate that was conscription lottery, Tony was to serve in the Vietnam War as part of the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment. It was May 1967 when Tony arrived at the Australian base in Nui Dat. We just got bedded in, allocated our tents, just made sure that we knew the lay of the land, had company meetings, uh, this is what's expected. And shortly after arriving, we just went on a one-day mission, which was just a search and destroy. You'd bring back the arms and destroy the food. And we did a couple of one-dayers, I'm sure, from memory, and a couple of two-dayers before we really hit our straps and got involved in the much longer operation. Do you remember playing any cricket at all in Vietnam or any other sports? Yeah, you know, I think we often played touch football, set up a uh, cricket pitch in the red mud, the red dust, just with a tennis ball and some sort of bat. I mean, I've met lots of guys since um, they said oh remember when you bounced me um, in in the lines and knew that and quite frankly I don't but then things obviously developed and then it was a case of trying to find the Viet Cong what were some of the more challenging moments you faced during your tour well two stick out in my mind when and excuse the language when I was pretty shit scared we were out this was during Tet and we'd been out in the bush for for weeks and the whole company and one of the platoon nine platoon spotted some some enemy the gung-ho platoon commander and sort of chased them and went straight into an enemy camp all of a sudden they were surrounded and pinned down 
he radioed into um, company headquarters. The company commander just ordered the company headquarters and the other two platoons to go and, and, and help him. And it was, it was a disaster, um, to be quite frank. It was, I think it was Australia Day 1968. And all of a sudden, this company commander who was new at the job because the best fellow that we'd had in the early part of the tour being sent home for educational purposes. This guy wasn't completely rational in what he did. And all of a sudden, the whole company was stuck with dust coming on and completely surrounded by enemy and snipers. We actually spent the whole night just awake and pinned down and with bullets sort of whizzing over the head every now and then. The company commander went to water. The CSM took charge, settled us all down until daylight. And then we called in artillery and the helicopter gunships and dispersed the enemy. You really feared for your life um, at that particular stage. And then leaving the camp in daylight the next day, I mean, you just see dead bodies and with their brains blown out, blood and guts. And, and that's something that's always remained with me. The other thing was just before I came home, and I came home a bit early because my time was up and I came back with a, a number of other people whose time was up also. And we were in a uh, holding company for about a week or so before we left. We became the people that did what they called the tail patrols target area of responsibility we were doing nightly ambush patrols and this particular time we went with a corporal who got us lost what happens in a theater of war like that you have what they call stand two which is at dusk and dawn because that's the time when the enemy is most most likely to attack so you have to be prepared we stood two just before dusk had no idea where we were and then we had to go to the ambush position in the dark and got even more lost. At that stage, he virtually aborted the ambush. We were just sitting in the long grass waiting for daytime. Then all of a sudden, a group of Viet Cong were approaching us. I don't know how many were, there were, but there were probably hundreds. We weren't in any position to fight them because we were scattered around and we could have easily shot each other. And so we just had to be head quiet while they walked through the position. You just lay there bloody absolutely shitting yourself, thinking that if I cough or sneeze or if the radio, the, you know, we had to turn the radio off because you get the squelch noise when there's some, uh, some traffic on it. And we would have, most of us probably would have been dead meat. I actually had the radio at that stage. Once they'd gone, we decided we'd call in artillery on them. I was so, as I say, shit scared that I couldn't talk properly on the radio. And I mean, we called in the artillery and they fired on them. And I think there was lots of casualties on their side. And then we were just called in. And shortly after that, I jumped on a plane and, and came home. Without those two main moments, I mean, this is a hypothetical question. Do you think you would have still developed PTS? I don't know. Last night, I was part of a, um, a Rotary Club dinner where I spoke about my, my lived experience. 
but there's also um, a young lady doing some research on ketamine as a medication for PTSD. She was incredibly au fait with PTSD and all of the causes and problems. And it's just such a complex thing. You know, and she's of the opinion that it just depends on the person, the incidents. Have you got a low threshold uh, for trauma or a, or a high threshold? And I said to her, well, I had a quite idyllic childhood. Maybe I had a low threshold. You know, I mean, there's um, written records of PTSD dating back to uh, the Greek wars in, you know, 3,000 years ago. It was now March 1968. Tony's tour of Vietnam was over and he had to begin the process of reintegrating into civilian life in Australia. Well, at that stage, I was always coming back to Brisbane, but my family, while I was in the army, had moved to, to Sydney. I came home on a commercial flight and landed in Sydney to be met by my family. I spent about a week with them. From my memory, no one ever talked about where I'd been. I often say, well, for all the good, I might as well have just been down the road to buy a bottle of milk. I can remember my two young brothers who were definitely children of the 60s. And I can remember at one stage sitting around with them in the, in the lounge room, listening to Hendrix with a strobe light and smoking my first joint ever. I'd had a girlfriend who I was totally in love with before I left. We wrote to each other all the time. On my r and I'd gone to Hong Kong and bought her an engagement ring. And she was at the airport when, uh, when I came home. The next day, I proposed to her and gave her the ring. And the day after that, she gave it back to me and said, I've met someone else. And shortly after that, I just jumped in my mum's car and drove back to Brisbane. When we came home, it was considered a dirty war. There were protesters and shitsters everywhere. And uh, we were told not to wear your uniform in public because you might get spat on. You just didn't talk about it. I finally got discharged, went out to um, Inogra Army Barracks, and it was just hand over all my bits and pieces, given my last pay and a handshake and see you later. Did you feel a different person when you came back? No, 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 because you think you're fine and it's the rest of the world which is, um, which is out of kilter. How did the repercussions of your time in Vietnam begin to show themselves in your day-to-day -day life? Oh, well, I mean, you go to a restaurant, even without thinking, back in, in the early days, I'd go to a place at the back of the restaurant and sit with my back to the wall facing the door. I mean, so many veterans just do that automatically and, and don't even yeah. think about it. And whenever a helicopter went over, I mean, the hairs on the back of my neck just stood up. A weird, weird feeling. And for Vietnam veterans, the Huey, as they called it, was just an intrinsic part of our life. And it was always there to bring us home after three weeks in the bush. And you just had this weird love affair with the Iroquois helicopter. The first recollection of PTSD symptoms was round about the time I got married. A, I couldn't sleep. There was teeth grinding, there was bad dreams, temper outbursts. 
relationship difficulties. I, I can't handle crowds of people. If I go to the theatre or the cinema with Sally, we just make sure that um, if there's a crowded foyer waiting to go into wherever we've got to go, we just avoid it. It upsets me and my legs start to go to jelly. Did that happen immediately or did that creep up on you? It crept up. My layman's explanation of PTSD is that you see all these things, um, you experience the fear, et cetera, et cetera. But because you're there doing a job, you have to move on and you just compartmentalize it. And it sits in your brain and starts to ferment. And it, it could take years. Seems crazy to talk about cricket after all this, but be great to know about how you got into cricket when you came back from Vietnam. Was cricket a release for you after your experiences in Vietnam? Oh, most definitely. And I'll always say that the camaraderie in the cricket and the rugby and being embroiled in, in work, I didn't have time to think about anything else. You know, I was pretty good at all three. You know, I'd always had these thoughts while I was over in Vietnam. You know, I'd get reports of, oh, so-and-so was picked as a fast bowler for Queensland. And I'd think to myself, Jesus, if I'd been there, that would have been me. I mean, I'm so much better than that bloke. So I got back and there was one particular selector reckoned that I wasn't very fit. And I'd been fitter than I ever was. And I can remember my first club match when I got back. We actually played a club match at the Gabba. And I bowled just about all afternoon and got seven wickets. But that season, um, 68, 69, I got picked for Queensland Colts, which is sort of an under-23 side. And for the first time for a long time, we actually beat New South Wales. And it was my first matches against the likes of David Colley and Kerry O'Keefe and Bruce Francis and Gary Gilmore, who was only 17 and almost won the match for them. 69-70 season. Again, you know, I mean, all these years I was sort of up there as one of the top wicket takers in club cricket. You know, in hindsight, I don't think it worried me all that much. I wanted to play, but I didn't get shitty because I wasn't picked. I mean, to me, cricket was just a release. It was just something that I enjoyed doing. And I loved my work and I loved my rugby. And I was in a pretty good place overall. And then... Sandy Morgan, who had been a mainstay of Queensland cricket fast bowling for quite a few seasons, he moved to moved to Sydney and the fellow that had replaced me went to Perth. All of a sudden there was a couple of spare spots there. And Tom Graveney at that stage was the uh, Queensland captain coach. Lovely, lovely fellow. I think I put a few around his ears at training and Bingo, I was in the side. And can you remember your first match for Queensland or your first few matches? Yeah, first few matches, I kept getting picked and getting none for all the time. You know, and I can remember even before I'd taken a first class wicket, I had Barry Richards and Ian Chappell dropped off successive balls. Then I started to get a few wickets. I played my first match in Perth, hard and fast and bouncy, my type of wicket. You know, and I got five or six in the first innings. Well, I mean, we still got beaten, but I guess that was the turnaround. Barry Richards, meanwhile, was I mean, he had a, a newspaper article and he was writing nice stories about me. I can remember much, much later, I ran into him in Perth. He was about 50 metres away from me and he looked up and saw me and I looked back at him and he sort of 
patted his chest because that's where um, I, I would hit him the most. The left, the left hand, a bit short of a length and very bang into the ribs. Let's hear from Ian Chappell again because he remembers a Sheffield Shield game involving Barry Richards and Tony Dell. We played Queensland in a, this was 7071 because Barry Richards was playing for South Australia. And we're playing at the Adelaide Oval. The fellow called Wild Bill Albury was opening at the other end from Delhi. They called him Wild Bill mainly because he, he was one of those guys whose arms went everywhere when he was running up the bowl. And we were 10, I reckon we were one for 10 after eight overs. Delhi had got Ashley Woodcock out, then Barry and I are in together. So Barry and I batting together and we're one for 10 after eight overs in a one day game. That's got to tell you something about the way Delhi's bowling. Bill's bowling at the other end. As he was in virtually his last stride, his hand hit his knee and the ball flew out and it flew over to mid off. And I'm on strike, you see. And I thought, fuck this, we need some runs here. So I yelled out, leave it, leave it. And I've gone over (laughs) and it was only then that I thought, shit, I'm 25 yards from my crease. If I hit the straight of the fielder, I'm bloody run out. So I then I started to panic a little bit. And anyhow, I, I managed to hit it into the gap and it went for four. And Delhi was fielding just near me, you see, and of course Delhi towers over me and he's come and he's plonked his elbow on my shoulder and he just looked down at me and he said, you're a fucking smart ass, aren't you? 1970 to 71 was the season that Tony broke into the Queensland side and there was also the small matter of an Ashes series. I think the Melbourne test was washed out. It was a six-match series originally. They decided that they'd have a seventh test match in Sydney. There was wholesale changes um, in the Australian team. Bill Laurie was sacked and Ian Chappell became the captain. And Tony Dell got a run playing in his first test match and opening the bowling with Dennis Lilly playing his second test match. You know, there's lots of people say that I outbowled Lilly in that test. Only trouble was I only got one more test wicket and he got about 300. How special was that to open the bowling with Dennis Lilly? He was just this young country, West Australian tearaway, bowling very quicker than lightning. Yes, Ian Chappell had Dennis Lilly and Tony Dell at his disposal for that seventh test. What did Ian think of Tony's performance in that game? If you didn't pull and hook, Tony could be a bloody nightmare because he was so tall and, and he was a big build as well. He was also a very accurate fast bowler and he swung it back into the right-hander, which is... The lefty who can swing it back in is the most awkward because then the one that he angles across you is is more difficult because you, you're never sure whether it's going to come back and you've got to play it and you, you're always like they'd nick it. You look at the way he got his wickets. He got, I mean, he got five wickets in his first test match. And look at how he got the wickets. He bowled two guys, two uh, or three guys caught in the slips. So he's getting guys out the way you want your fast bowlers to get fellas out either hitting the stumps or hitting the edge. He was unlucky that it was the last test of the series because five wickets obviously gets you another test at least. So if he gets the next game and he does well again, he's in the side for a little while and then then he probably goes to England in 72. He was an awkward customer. And what about from Tony's perspective? What was it like to play under Ian Chappell? Oh, I mean, he, he was a legend even then. Ian will tell you that he's your captain for life. He just looked after his players. 
he'd talk to you and he'd say, you know, okay, Deli, what, what now? You know, you want someone here, want someone there? You know, and he, he talked to you all the time. And I'd never, ever had that. And I can just ring him up and say, I've got this, this thing happening. Um, can you be there? Did you tell any of your teammates you'd been in Vietnam? Not that I can remember. I just didn't want to talk about where I'd been. Early uh, in my cricket career, we were still in Vietnam. It was, there were still protests. There wasn't a welcome home march for Vietnam veterans until 1987. I did become more aggressive. Ian and Greg, you know, thought I'd been born that way, but I hadn't. Maybe that's what got me a test match. Yes, Ian Chappell may have roomed with Tony during that seventh test, but he was completely in the dark about his time in Vietnam. I had no idea until he started this. He rang up and said, mate, I need your help. I'm, this is what I'm doing with post-traumatic stress. So that would have been, I don't know, five, six years ago. And that, that was the first I knew about Vietnam. I've spoken to a few of the guys and Dougie might have known because he was in the army. I don't remember Doug saying anything about it. So to my knowledge, no one knew. And he certainly didn't say anything. But, I mean, that's fairly normal. Guys who go to war don't usually talk about it. And, I mean, Vietnam was such a shit war that Mm. you probably didn't want to talk about it. Greg Chappell, on the other hand, was aware of Tony's tour of Vietnam. And it could so easily have been him. I knew because I'd sort of gone through in 60. Eight, I went through the draft, you know, the draw that I think he had the losing ticket and I was lucky to be one that got the winning ticket and didn't get called up. So he and Doug Walters were the two cricketers that I knew had been called up. Doug, perhaps because he was better known uh, than Tony, had probably been looked after and didn't go to Vietnam, whereas Tony, not being so well known, um, just got shunted off to to Vietnam. We didn't talk about it. I don't you know. I don't know that he was certainly in a rush to to talk about it. But we didn't grill him about it. I do remember having some conversations because I I, I was incredulous that he'd actually been a forward scout. Now, why you would put a six foot seven bloke up front as the biggest target in the platoon or in the unit, I couldn't quite understand. Even with my limited military um, knowledge, I'd had a couple of years in the cadets at school. I would have thought Tony Dell would be the bloke I'd want down the back. It just seemed like madness. I mean, the whole thing was madness. And had he been in a better place, he should have gone to England in 72. You know, I mean, he was one of the best fast bowlers in the, in the country. But I think had Tony played in that series, he would have been very awkward in those conditions. And what about Tony? What does he make of his lot? Does he think about what might have been if he had played earlier in that series? Oh, crikey, yeah. I, I think about it a bit. I was just a rookie at this first-class game. I didn't think a lot about the game. I loved playing cricket. And for that particular test, I was the right person in the right place at the right time. I just turned up and I bowled. And then when the match was over, I went home and I didn't bask in too much glory. But, you know, there was a number of people said to me that, oh, your run-up's too long. And I spent the off-season working on a shorter run-up but come the next season with the shorter run-up, I think I tried too hard at the, um, at the point of delivery. I um, strained a few side muscles. So I missed a few games. I wasn't quite the force I had been. And then there was a 72 Ashes tour, which if you had a look at 
my figures in that seventh test, I should have been a walk-up star. But it didn't happen. In hindsight, I don't think I really stressed too much about it. Just continued on with my life. Even though it was brief, what did it mean to you to play in the Ashes? Oh, I mean, it was, I mean, it's the pinnacle. And, and to know that you have actually played in an Ashes Test match, I mean, that's the pinnacle of any cricketer's dreams, their cricket life. Because I was still a POM at that stage. I mean, I hadn't been, didn't have any citizenship. I thought it was just natural that, you know, I mean, if the government could send you to war and Donald Bradman could pick you to play cricket, you're an Aussie. You know, and, <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And, and got the shock of my life when I was told that, I think it was about 2000, when I took some boys over to England. And on the way back, I think we were in Brunei on the last leg. They said, you can't get on the plane because you're not an Australian citizen. They don't want you. I said, friggin' hell, they sent me to war and I played cricket for the bastards. But, he, you know, what more do you want? We talked him around and I, and I got back. There was still time for Tony to make one final test appearance for Australia. In 73-74 um, New Zealand toured, Queensland played them in Brisbane. Greg got 180 and I got two lots of sick. We knocked them over in two days. And as a result of that, they picked the same 12 for the first and second test, um, one in Melbourne and one in Sydney. But the silly selectors picked me for the Melbourne test instead of Max Walker on his home wicket and then played him in the Sydney test, which was a bloody green top. And, you know, my favourite bloody brown. And so I was 12th man. Australia won that test in Melbourne by an innings, with Tony taking one for 54 in the first innings. But by this point, Tony was considering retirement from the game to concentrate on his career in advertising. When you're in the army, you're always told that the, the platoon or the unit um, is only as strong as the weak member. And we had full-time jobs in those days. I was damn good at my job in advertising production. But I always had these guilt feelings about nicking off and playing cricket, leaving someone else to do my job. I just went up to, uh, late in the 73, 74 season, Sam Loxton, who was the resident um, selector, that I didn't want to play anymore. Because one of the things was that there was a three-match series against New Zealand. Following that, there was a tour of New Zealand for another three matches. And I could just see myself being away for another couple of months from work. And I just said, I don't want to play anymore. And he said, okay. And I can remember that we actually caught a cab from the SCG to, um, to the airport because he was going back to Melbourne and I was going to Brisbane. He was reasonably cool about that. Um, he just said to me, good luck telling Greg, my Queensland captain. And I didn't tell him till the end of the season that last Shield match. I mean, we were in line to win the Shield and New South Wales were our last match. Geoffrey Thompson was, was in the uh, New South Wales side. Geoffrey Thompson had a point to prove to the New South Wales selectors. Built like a brick shithouse and he just cleaned us up beautifully. I went up to Greg, just said, I don't want to play anymore. He basically said bullshit. You know, he said, I've just got Geoffrey Thompson coming here and you've got to open the bowling with it. Okay, playing in an Ashes test is the pinnacle. 
but for a fast bowler, opening the bowling at that stage with Jeffrey was um, was equally as high. From Greg's perspective, Barry Richards was instrumental in his decision to get Tony to play that extra season. Tony was the only bowler that I saw trouble Barry. Barry changed his initial movements when he batted against Tony Dell, and I think that was because of he was left-handed, he was tall, he swung the ball into the right-hand batsman, and his bounce was awkward from a length, from his height. You know, he got quite side-on, he was quite tall and upright. So I think that added to my own experience of having the same issue, that he was really difficult to get on the front foot to. When he announced that he wasn't going to play anymore, I got on the phone as quickly as I could and said, mate, are you sure about this? I think we could use your skills. Uh, and I think, you know, no one knew, not least of all Tony, that at that stage he was sort of going through one of his sort of depressive periods and, you know, probably wasn't feeling very valuable to anyone. And so getting a phone call saying, you know, we want you and we need you to play, would you consider it? Probably came at a, an opportune time in some ways. Tony played that final season for Greg at Queensland, but that was to be it for his first-class career. Following his retirement from cricket, Tony enjoyed some stunning successes in the advertising industry, but these were punctuated by some crushing blows. Well, in 1980, I got fired from my first job. I'd been there since two years in the army, but since 65. And again, it was just that weakest member situation where, and I really didn't know I was doing it, but you know, I was sort of castigating people that I felt that were letting the site down. Now, I was a full director at that stage. Why were you fired? Because of the way I was treating these people. It's something that works in the army, but doesn't work in, in business. That was the reason I was given. I'd been there well, for 15 years, but then the, the owner just decided that, um, that I had to leave. We both cried, yeah, and I got fired. I'd even given up my cricket for the bastards, and they fired me. I started a little company of my own called Tony Dell Productions and got lots and lots of clients. And I shared some premises with a fellow called Lloyd Graham. And then we decided that we'd start up um, our own agency. We were approached by J. Walter Thompson. And all of a sudden, we started up this agency, which was Graham, Dell and Thompson. And we just kicked so many goals and won so many clients. In eight years, we've gone from a standing start to uh, probably about the fourth largest in town. And then one day, Lloyd called me into the boardroom. He had his lawyer there and the fellow up from Melbourne, um, from Ogilvy Mather, and said, you're out. Didn't give me a reason. And I was a partner. And my wife at the time was our uh, major creative, and she was one of the best in town as well. And he said, oh, Katie can stay. And she basically said, well, you can stick that. We then started off the Dell partnership and 40% of his clients followed it. It was a good business to be in until Paul Keating, who was the prime minister at the time, deregulated the advertising industry so that clients could buy their own media and we'd lose out on the 7.5% service fee. He abolished the, uh, the fringe benefits tax, which made it even harder for us. He brought on the recession we had to have, which is what it was called back in those days. And interest rates were up to 
Then my biggest client, an organization called the Parfum Group UK, well, he moved over here, a fellow called Graham Thomas. He was pretty well tied up with Worcester um, back in the day and a great friend of Ian Botham. He became the Queensland sponsor. He brought Ian Botham over here for a season. So he was my major client. And he came to me on Queen's birthday, 1990, and said, I've gone bust. And he owed me a quarter of a million, um, which was buckloads in, in 1990. We lost everything. Now our house, our business premises, my lovely Jag, and eventually my family. By his own admission, the 90s were the darkest decade of Tony's life and they passed by in a blur. But his entrepreneurial spirit saw him try to battle back once again. My family had gone. My wife and kids were living in Brisbane. I was living in my mum's garage up on the Sunshine Coast. I started up the Australian International Sports Academy. That finally morphed into India. We went over to, on a promotional tour and Greg Chappell came. That's when he got headhunted to coach the Indian cricket team. It finally sort of morphed into me partnering with some Indians. We came up with this concept um, with indoor stadiums and with indoor cricket, tennis, basketball, football. We had three on the go around about 2007. And then the GFC hit and it was back to square one again. I guess the final solution was never really an option. You know, I mean, I was down and out. I don't think I would have topped myself. It must have been very easy at this point to think that life was conspiring against him. But thankfully, salvation was at hand. And then I just got a call from a Defence Cricket. They handed me the lifeline that I needed. I was the only Vietnam veteran that had played test cricket. They had the International Defence Cricket Challenge happening every couple of years in Canberra. And uh, would I be their guest? I said, for sure, if you can pay my way. By then, I had the backside hanging out of my pants. I was living in my mum's garage in Caloundra on the Sunshine Coast. I went down and as I was getting ready to um, come home, one of the uh, retired colonels in charge said to me, do you still have your medals? I said, oh no, my kids ruined them as they were growing up. So eventually they talked me into um, getting the replacements at this drop-in centre um, on the Sunshine Coast. All they wanted to do was talk about cricket. And they were veterans themselves. They said, you've got PTSD. And I said, oh, bullshit. And they asked me, you know, a few more pertinent questions. My sex drive, et cetera, et cetera. Hadn't been with a woman for about 15 years and, and just other things and crowds and, and so on and so forth and inadvertently losing my temper. And they said, well, we can get you a pension, which was music to my ears. So they sent me off to a psychiatrist to be officially diagnosed. Got the pension and the gold card. There was 40 years between you returning from Vietnam and finally being diagnosed with PTSD. Do you ever think how life could have been different if you'd got that diagnosis a lot earlier? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I probably would have kept playing first-class cricket, might have played 30, 20 or 30 test matches, who knows? But, uh, I mean, as far as business goes, you know, I mean, I'm convinced that what I did and being a workaholic and the highs 
I get out of that. I think I became a more creative person, which is why I tend to sort of come up with these ideas that, uh, that we run with now. And maybe if I didn't have this workaholic syndrome, maybe I might have just been an ordinary production person. I don't know. Now that he had finally been diagnosed, Tony could start to make some sense of the previous 40 years and look ahead with more confidence. And the germ of an idea about how he could help others in his situation slowly began to form in 2009. By then, both of my knees were absolutely stuffed. I had my right one replaced. And then I got a call, would I come to IDCC 2009? And would I give the... uh, the speech at the awards night and talk about my army service and my cricket career and how they dovetailed. So I did that. I chucked in the fact that 12 months in Vietnam was good training to be in uh, Ian Chappell's dressing room. Yeah, and it wasn't strictly true, but it was a good line and uh, and it got a good laugh. Um, I got a standing ovation um, because I did talk about PTSD in front of four or five hundred international soldiers. And at that stage, Angus Houston was still a patron of cricket, uh, defence cricket, um, went back to the table and, you know, and I remember him sort of giving me a bit of a handshake and a hug. The next day, the lady captain in charge of the New Zealand Army team came up to me and shook my hand and said, thank you so much, half of my blokes, I want to have a chat. With me when we get home. It's only recently that I've thought about that and thought, oh Christ, even before Stan Tall, I made a bit of a difference to a few blokes' lives. I then went back to the Sunshine Coast, had my second knee replaced in early 2010. And as I lay in the hospital, I thought about what I could do next. I just thought about the standing ovation. The fact that, you know, there was tens of thousands of other Vietnam veterans had no idea why their lives had turned to crap. I thought, well, I could set something up and help them and it would keep me busy. I came up with the concept of an awareness organisation, but, you know, I was $80,000 in debt and had no chance of starting up a not-for-profit. I just got a letter from my psychiatrist and a friendly uh, accountant that I'd been to school with. And he got most of that rescinded. And one of the colonels went to the Australian Cricketers Association Hardship Fund and said, can you help this bloke? And I got 20000 from them. Then someone else got hold of the Kerry Packer Foundation. And they took care of the rest. And all of a sudden, I was solvent. Tony founded Stand Tall for PTS in 2010. The original concept was to help the thousands of other Vietnam veterans who had no idea why their lives had turned sour after they came home. But its scope has grown to include serving military, veterans of other conflicts and first responders. It also led to Tony meeting his current partner, Sally Hodder. Incredibly, Jim Maxwell was the matchmaker. Sally's sister heard Jim interviewing Tony on ABC. Sally and Tony were friends back in the 70s, but now the relationship was rekindled. She emailed me said remember me and my memory's crap I said no we then started talking on the phone and and I actually flew to Perth December 2015 and the rest as they say 
is history. After a successful conference in 2015, the focus for Stand Tall for PTS is a national joined-up effort that aims to generate real change in three key areas. The transition back to civilian life, reducing the number of suicides and drastically improving models of care. So how does Tony propose to do this? Well, ever since I've been involved in this, the success rate of treatment has not improved one, one iota. I mean, it's still only about 30% successful. Getting people off the couch and uh, becoming contributing members of society once again. There's probably over a million Australians in that category. We've run two convoys of military and first responder vehicles and personnel and done hundreds and hundreds of interviews and probably reached 10 million people with awareness of PTSD and what it's doing and, and the need to improve what we're doing. What do you hope to achieve with Stand Tall for PTS? To be able to go to the government and change the way they do things, upgrade the 30% success rate. I mean, it can never be cured because what's in there is there for life. How should the government be tackling this situation and what should they be spending their money on? Funding the likes of equine therapy, um, canine therapy, um, yoga, art, etc., etc. They're all proven ways of teaching people to manage and getting them better. Um, suicide rates through the roof because we don't do a very good job with transition out of the armed forces. People are going out underprepared. And uh, for the first responders, they've got nothing. As soon as they flag the fact that um, they've got problems, they're given a year. If there's no improvement, they're out. The suicide rate in, um, in first responders is double the national average. And Tony is clearly the man for the job. But don't take it from me. Take it from Ian Chapel. You know, what he's done for post-traumatic stress is fantastic. He seems to be able to get people to do things. You know, and I'm talking people, not just me, like I was his captain. And, and I've said many times that once you're their captain, you're their captain for life. So not surprising that he rings me up and he says, mate, I need your help. You know, I'm going to help him. But, you know, all the way up the line to prime ministers, Delhi seems to have this ability to just say to them, mate, you know, we need some help here. This needs to be done. Yeah. And they sort of say, yeah, okay, well, we'll do it. He's either a very good salesman or he's such a big bastard that they think, shit, I better not argue with him. <laughs> Tony's story is now reaching far and wide. And the Sky News US correspondent, Greg Millam, has written a book about Tony called And Bring the Darkness Home. So how did that come about? Yeah, it came about when I was at Lords um, at the Pakistan-England Test Match. A friend of mine who's a scorer for the MCC got me an interview with Jonathan Agnew on BBC Test Match Special. Tea time on the first day and Boycott was in the room. And Agnew said, oh, you'd remember this fella. He turned around, oh, Tony Dell, big left armour. Greg heard the interview and decided that um, it was a good enough story for him to write a book. Looking back, how do you view what happened to you now? Until I was diagnosed in 2008, I just thought that all the unfortunate things that had happened to me in business and in my family life were just bad luck. I have to admit that 
cricket-wise, I never had any real memories of ambitions to play for Queensland or play for Australia. I think in hindsight, I should have possibly played for Queensland much earlier. If I had, would I have been like Doug Walters and not been sent to Vietnam? I don't know. I just took the things that happened to me. I didn't think too much about them. I just took them with a grain of salt. I, I have to admit that in the 90s when I went belly up, that was my darkest period because I had to fight where previously it had come so easily. What's your yeah. overriding emotion when you, when you look back? I mean, are you angry that you were sent to war? I'm, no, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. I think in hindsight that if cricket hadn't been in the way, I would have signed on for another six years. It was boys' own stuff. I mean, you were 21 and full of testosterone. To be perfectly honest, it was an adventure. Instead of dreaming about being a soldier, I was a soldier. And quite frankly, I loved it. Yeah, it's like the cricket. I just played because I enjoyed it. I didn't think too much about the reason for being a soldier. And I didn't think too much about the fact that I was playing for Australia. Tony Dell, ladies and gents. An extraordinary tale. So many setbacks, so many struggles. And yet he has always, somehow, eventually, through sheer force of will, managed to turn them into a positive. And nowhere is this more true than when setting up Stand Tall for PTS. Stand Tall stands proud as Australia's foremost promoter of post-traumatic stress awareness and of the urgent action the government needs to take. You can find out more at standtallforpts.org. In the UK, combat stress fulfills the same function as Stand Tall. For more than 100 years, they have been the UK's leading charity for veterans' mental health Today, they deliver their world-leading specialist treatment to former servicemen and women with complex mental health issues such as post-traumatic stress disorder. To find out more, visit combatstress.org.uk. All that remains is to say a big thank you to Tony for sharing the story of his life, for his humour and good grace, and for having the courage to take us through the bad times as well as the good. Thanks also to Ian and Greg Chappell for their time and insight and their continued support of Tony's work. As Ian says, once he's your captain, he's your captain for life. Thanks as ever for listening. We'll meet again soon enough with more from Ian, more from Greg, and more from our One Ashes Test Wonders. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett, and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. (laughs) ¶¶